If you're looking for a clean, sober, professional, academic, well-researched, historically accurate, generally accurate, serious podcast on Southern folklore, ghosts, bizarre events, and unique people, this podcast is not for you. However, if you've decided you can live with that, then join us for The Strange South. Patrice. Hi, Courtney. Hello, y'all. Oh. Welcome to another episode. Here we are Here we together are. again. again. Yay! <laughs> Drinking alcohol like in the middle do. of the day on Sunday, as you should. <laughs> Sundays were meant for liquor. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers, everyone. Cheers. This is a classic, but a strong one. It is mm. very strong. Well, Good. because why? Why is this so strong? I'll tell you me? why. I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. Okay. Everyone knows if you've listened long enough that I have strong feelings about gin and they're not positive. <laughs> however, so mm-hmm. Travis, however, it we is. talked last episode about how we went to Dread River and we used their vodka last week. And we also bought the gin from Dread River in Birmingham. Mm-hmm. And my friend Renee, before we went, she said, try their gin. I know you don't like gin, but I think you'll like this gin. And I was like, okay, sure. Whatever. And then we go on the distillery tour and they talk about how they make their gin. And in the middle, they're telling us how, unlike a lot of gins, they also, you have to have 51% juniper to be a gin. And they do have that. See, Courtney remembers but things. But they also have to. Right. <laughs> we have children. Comes, That's comes to alcohol. <laughs> That's my job. Y'all are like doing story stuff. I'm learning about liquor, right? Yes. <laughs> and so they also, though, they fill a basket in their distillery. And when the when the first, you know, whatever, the liquor comes out, they run it through a basket of dried, like, peels of oranges and lemons Mm. and other spices Mm -hmm. and it gives it this different flavor and that's why i wanted us to have at least one classic gin martini yeah so you could enjoy the flavor so you could taste that flavor that is different and it's just uh dread river gin and a tiny bit of dry vermouth and a lemon um twist that you squeeze to get the lemon oils on mm-hmm. it is delicious and you can taste a difference than mm-hmm. just regular gin with this i wouldn't be drinking it like taste this if not. <laughs> so i really do like it so cheers to you and cheers to dread river cheers for this to gin. straight gin <laughs> <laughs> cheers to gin uh, oh my lord mm-hmm. thank you mm-hmm. this is delicious it is delicious and it's also pretty martinis are always pretty yes mm-hmm. lovely pictures Mar- yeah, Mar- Marlea. I mean, Patrice is I'm, drinking out of her martini glass. I'm Marlea. I, I, did you notice how slowly I picked it up <laughs> to like move it to? I've, she, nothing I was has sloshed. Just thinking, I need a sippy cup. <laughs> she has a fear of martini glasses, I but do. we're going to get her over them. <laughs> I just end up wearing it instead of drinking it. I have a running gifts list, and I've tried to get better over the years at adding things as people say them. Sippy cup martini glass. So sippy cup martini Ooh. glass goes. I'm against on. that. There I are know you are. <laughs> there are not many drinks that require a specific glass, but a martini is one of them. But I mean, it, it could has still to be the shape of a martini glass. It just needs, needs a, a lid. Like a nipple on well, top. Well, hell, we could just put a bendy straw in there for that matter, I oh, guess. Oh, we could get you a bendy straw. Well, that, well, but yeah. what, we put a lid on it, though. It needs yeah. a lid, though. It's the, it's the picking it up. up. 
part and we could get a really long bendy straw (laughs) it's a crazy super super long crazy straw you could just let it sit there on the table like its own little roller coaster (laughs) just get one of those damn beer helmets and pour gin in the top and drink it from the (laughs) oh my god (laughs) don't do that seriously don't do that you you could Uh, alcohol poisoning we do not endorse this idea (laughs) at all no no do not shotgun liquor (laughs) gin that's hard to say Jesus. Well, what have we got going on for the front of show? You know, I haven't really read all of it and watched all of it. I I do feel like we do need to mention about the Georgia Guidestones. Oh, Oh my my God. God. Well, because this is old news by the time this episode's coming out. But yes. But also, if you haven't been like on the fan uh, group. Which you should be. You should be. (laughs) You would know things like this Because that's how you learned about it. That's how I learned about it. You're right. That's where all the sharing and caring goes (laughs) on. And so many of our friends on the fan group were like posting like, oh, my God, I saw this. Oh, my God, I wanted to share this with you. Yes, exactly. So if you haven't heard or just avoid news, which I totally get because I avoid news as well because I like to mm-hmm. like not be depressed all the time. Fair enough. But the Georgia Guidestones are no more. Someone blew them up. Someone <laughs> blew them up. And then the town finished the job, right? And then the town Didn't finished. They, yeah. yeah. They were like, oh, well, one's gone. Might as well take down the other two. And the main reason that the town had problems with them is because they thought there was devil worshiping going on there. Which is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. They also thought that there was a time capsule and they dug it up. But they really did dig, even though that wasn't true what they found. Oh, oh that right. was really funny, though. But so, the town really did. I found a news, like a legit news article that the town did, that the city, once they blew them up, looked. What, right. was, what was that joke post? Was oh that my there God, was it like was a hilarious. Peterbilt logo? Perfect. It's like a Playboy. A Playboy, a Playboy with Burt Reynolds on the cover. That was signed by Burt Reynolds And as he well. was on the cover. And, and he was signed. on the cover. And, and uh, there was 1700 a, to 1300 quaaludes valued at $2 million. Yes. And, then the, <laughs> and then and then the Peterbilt de- decal and one other thing. I can't remember what the last thing the was. The quaaludes, the Peterbilt, the Playboy. The Playboy. And there were four things. Anyways. But it was very. That, that was uh, was there funny. liquor in it or something maybe? I didn't, or, I didn't think so. I no, can't remember. It was, uh, it, I feel like it was like an RC Cola or Whoever posted that, they got me at first. I was like. <laughs> me too. Wait, is this real? I was thinking, was Johnny Cash here? <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, and if you're if you're wondering what the fuck we're talking about, and okay. it, go back to episode seventy four. Patrice Elbert talks County. about the Georgia Guidestones. Yes. It's called the ugliest Guidestones in Georgia. It was a tape of Saturday. It was an eight track of Saturday night, Saturday, Saturday night Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it it was a really really funny, and right. I mean so quick they came out with that spoof article oh, like immediately. Immediately they were on it. Everybody was on it. I'm just going like what. So we checked that off the must see. Yeah, because it's list, not there anymore. Because it's not there anymore, which is not a bad thing. I mean, because as you talked about, the history of it is it's, uh, problematic. It's problematic. He was, you know, white supremacist, eu- eugenic, super, super person. problematic. One of the other super. memes somebody posted was Dollar General coming soon. Oh my God. I saw that one. <laughs> it's probably well, true. And it probably will be true. Well, yeah. well, the thing I, well, the thing that they, the politicians in the area have been like petitioning is to get rid of it because of all the devil worshiping that's been going on there. All the devil worship. All the devil worshiping. Jesus and like, Christ. right. And so, I mean, I went to some of my friends who live in Georgia and are very familiar with the Godstones. 
when they posted about it and there was like all the comments, there was screenshots on Facebook of like the politicians talking about like, you know, all the devil worshiping and how they need to go. That's, you know, draws nothing but like Satanist or, or whatever. And it's just like, I'm like, have y'all read the Guidestones? It's like, have you, do y'all know what's going on I'm there? I'm sure they don't. They don't. And so the fact that they blew them up was kind of like brilliant and perfect because they they were problematic. Um, the only real reason to go there is because it's just kind of this oddity. Mm-hmm. Just like you find like the houses with like the bazillion crosses in the front mm-hmm. yard. You know, it's just a southern oddity that we all kind of grow up with. And the fact that they blew it up is sad in one regard. But again, the message was not great. But obviously the message didn't matter because nobody fucking read it anyway. I know. So I I posted somewhere, I bet you they like put a cross on it because of like all just the hate that they got from it, from the local people um, just hating on it. And I'm like, dude, it's like a perfect tourist trap. It's like perfect. Oh, yeah. But I mean, like Satanists have money, too. Jesus. Yeah. Good Lord. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> also, they don't exist, but whatever. Yeah. Just figment of your imagination. Oh, Guidestones. Farewell. Uh, farewell. farewell. Guidestones. Rip. Rip. Rest in pieces. I just, oh. I just want to make sure I wasn't like reading fake news. It was from the Elbert County. Let's see. The Elberton Star did say that Elbert County Road Department dug up land where alleged time capsule was buried at the site of the Georgia Guidestones. There was no time capsule found <laughs> at the site, despite false information circulating other social media pages. <laughs> <laughs> the funniest false information local news can provide. Right. <laughs> it, was, it was dead on, though. Oh, but my God. It was so good. I was laughing so hard. It really did get me for a minute. I'm yeah, like, me too. I was like, I well. I don't disbelieve it. I don't either. Mm. Well. So that that was the that's the only current dish news that caught my attention for opening up the episode. That and the joyride of Patrick, our friend. Yeah, uh, the joyrider, our our friend who <laughs> runs a auto repair shop and had a twelve year old steal a car and ride it into the side of his building the other day. Bless, bless. Luckily, no one was injured. There was some damage to his place. Sorry, Patrick. You know, all I can think of is your stories about stealing your grandmother's car. <laughs> I was like, Courtney's lucky this never happened to her. I was living five. There were no buildings. It was just trees. <laughs> I hit several trees, though. And as you know, one hound dog. It was sad. Oh, no. Sad, I know. Sad I can't tell it again. Sad, I'll sad cry. Tale. Don't, no, no. don't cry. That's not, that's not where we want to be today. <laughs> no. We're not. This isn't a crying episode, It's not friends. funny, but I did it. I learned a large, large lesson of life and... The power of automobiles. The power of automobiles. <laughs> Absolutely. Since we are both having teenagers come up, that's mm-hmm. getting very close to the driving age. And listen, all mm-hmm. of our friends who have teenagers who are like getting close to the driving age, because I've heard so many people say, my teenager has no interest in getting their driver's license. Yeah. My teenager seems to be uh, an exception to the rule. My introverted doesn't usually want to leave the house or talk to anyone. teenager is like, yeah, I'm going to get my license. Like, yeah, yeah I'm going to get my I permit. I talked to her about it. I talked to them about it yesterday and 
they are like all over it. Yeah, they're I'm, all about it. I'm yeah. like, all right. I give two thumbs up. I Me do too. All the parents whose teens don't want it. I'm like, I'm not your chauffeur for the rest of your life. <laughs> I, I was going to say, because if they had said, no, they didn't want to do it. I was going to say like, well, we're going to start the Sorry. process at 15 mm-hmm. and we are going to get you your license mm-hmm. because for real, I will not be your chauffeur mm-hmm. for the rest of your life. Absolutely. It takes up, I mean, I swear, like so driving my kids takes up more well, parenting time than anything else that I do. Because so. of where we live, you don't have another yeah. option. If, if not, there's no bus. There's yeah, they no can't train, walk there's no to taxi, any place. I know. And all of, all of y'all no... who are who are similarly in the rural South or rural anywhere, mm-hmm. y'all, y'all get you know. what we're saying here. Mm-hmm. I was listening to some friends of mine from high school. Well, I wasn't listening to them. I was in a conversation <laughs> with them. But I was just quietly listening to this part because they were talking about how far things were. We're we're gonna visit visit a friend of mine and all of us are gonna kinda converge on his little town in, in um coastal North Carolina. And he was like, You don't understand how small it is. It's like ten minutes to the grocery store. And I'm like, Yeah. <laughs> it was like, you know, we grew up outside of DC, but like all of us moved to different places. Some of us moved to California and some of us moved to bigger places, but like I moved down here. Right. <laughs> like, we, I know things are far. Right. <laughs> things are far from places. Ten minutes. We don't have sidewalks. Hell, we don't even have sidewalks in town. Right. Yeah. Our bike lane is literally just a bike <laughs> painted on the street <laughs> and fucking good luck to you right in front of my house and the only reason we have that is because of the chihaw challenge mm-hmm. which is an international qualifier for the tour de france kind and, of thing it's like somehow, big news so. somehow we don't leverage that into bigger things but like sidewalks <laughs> you know what i can't bike about it. Bike lanes. I'm, I'm absolutely unwilling to engage in public government or any you know yeah, anything like that so i guess i can't bitch because i'm just like i ain't gonna do it i yeah. just expect you guys to right but oh i can still bitch about it but yeah <laughs> same thing I, I will not be volunteering for that thankless horrible job yep, i'm gonna that somebody needs to do better job at <laughs> i can't even replace my own driveway <laughs> you can fall into my driveway all the way to like Australia or to some the shit upside right down. Now. Yeah, yeah. There, there is a portal <laughs> to the upside down in my driveway. Y'all keep left. <laughs> we, I'm not telling you that. If you come to my house uninvited, stay on the right. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, all right. Well, I'm first today. Yay! This is do um, it. Do it. Okay. Pretend like you've never heard anything like this before in your lives. I don't remember. I so. don't. Yeah, I know. See, we we told this before, but um, we lost an entire episode on uh, because of uh, technical problems with our our recorder. Like Sorry. it just do- no, it's is not- it recording? Patrice doesn't <laughs> the, need to apologize. The technical problem is called Patrice. No, the technical <laughs> problem is called technical problem. It's called it stopped. The thing stopped. The thingy McGigger stopped and, recording. And so, like we we lost it. I see. And lights, um, so. but I think we were drunk enough by the time I did this one that maybe you don't remember much of it. You're probably gonna have that brain itch where it's like mm-hmm. I think I've heard something like. What I'm is excited. it? I'm excited. Me too. Yep. All right, I love well, people to tell me what I did in the past. Much less a story. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, it was told to me in the past. Well, they, I changed some of the some of the intro stuff, so maybe it will be new to you. Because, well, I was just going to say, remember, we both have grown up in the South, mm-hmm. and so it is a common pastime for older people <laughs> to tell us the same thing over and over again, mm-hmm. especially like different triggers of like the road and landmarks mm-hmm. will come like so we are here for it i'm ready all right well the reason that i started going down this road 
had to do with the fact that we all seem to have cats on the brain for a while. Cats! And we all still do because Patrice has two brand new, adorable, itty bitty kitties. Itty bitty kitty mini in her in her bedroom, right? Growing up into little monsters right they now, and they're monsters. adorable. And one of them has a heart on the side of her, on her side in yes. her fur. It's super cute. I have a kitten, <clears throat> and I know Courtney's always got cats on the brain because Courtney never stops thinking about her kitten. She's two and eleven and a half pounds, but she's a kitten. <laughs> And of course, I have my cats. Yes. I know my cats are probably the least like fanfared of any of our cats, but I do love them. They're they're sweet. My, I love your my pets three too. Friends, yeah, my three little friends. So we all have cats like in our lives all the time. So I was looking at cats in Appalachian Appalachia Appalachian folklore, and there's a blog that I've gone to before. It's called Holy Stones and Iron Bones, and it's a really cool blog, which of course I'll link. But they posted some stuff about this. As I was starting to read it, it seems like cats have a kind of an odd place in Appalachian folk stories because you often think about cats as being like the witch's familiar mm-hmm. as, you know, being a bad luck. But in in folklore, a lot of the time cats are also good luck. And Holy Stones and Iron Bones talks about specifically the belief in and this will this is one of those it's going to go a bunch of different directions. But we're going to start with the black cat bone mm, yes. as a good luck charm. This isn't just Appalachia. Across the world, like they use black cat bones specifically as part of like a hoodoo bag. It can do various things. You can, um, it can bring good luck. It can bring aid. It can bring money. Some people say that if you hide, it can make you invisible. It can give you luck if you're gambling. But there are some differences in how you find a cat, a black cat bone and, and how you use it, depending on what story you're listening to. So one of the stories I found said that you get a black cat bone by catching a black cat and boiling it alive in a pot of water no! at midnight. <laughs> no. At midnight. I'm against this. Yes. We do not support this. No. Right. Not every bone in a black cat is the black cat bone. Mm. Every black cat has just one bone that's magical, mm. according to lore. And there are a couple different theories on how you find the right one. So Zora Neale Hurston wrote about this. She, she wrote a book <gasps> called Mules and Men. And she said that you'd have to you'd have to fast before you catch the animal and then you do have to boil it. Sorry. And no, Zora, the hoodooist would taste each bone after boiling Mm. and then select the bitterest one as the black cat. bone. Hard pass. I know. Right. Like so that was one way you would find I guess magic is bitter. I guess magic tastes like magic tastes bitter. Magic tastes bad. So there were other stories that say that you would know the bone because it would be the size of your own tooth or it would fit perfectly over your own tooth, which once again requires someone to put a cat bone into their mouth. So it's not like the wishbone. It's not like no, you always know like, in it's the not turkey. Like, yeah, the it's wish not like bone. the femur is the, the black like cat the, bone. You have, to, you have to discover which of the bones is the magic bone. Which may be the reason to catch and boil a live cat as dead cats. You do not want to put dead things in your mouth I, I don't want to put any of it in my mouth I, either way yes anyway, but I'm just trying to I rationalize I got to logic a little bit so, uh, there was also this one this one I would go for much more easily is that it's the first one to rise while boiling <laughs> okay we'll go with that All right. Um. or oh oh or it's the one that temporarily blinds you when you put it in your mouth. I was like, oh. why do all these have to do with me putting a dead cat's bones in my mouth? That's a no go for me. 
there was another, you're going to hate this so much. Only if Cece uh, tried to eat the, me first. <laughs> all the cat killing stuff we're going to get rid of right here at the beginning. Good. We're just going to cleanse it. Another method was to fry the cat and eat it alone in a dark room. And oh. when you bite the right bone, oh, no. a thunder or flash of lightning would show in the no. room. And so you would know. No, kitten. There was one that said when dumped in the, but yours is not a black cat. No. Oh, she has black, half a black face. <laughs> Panther, I know. When, uh, when you dump the bones in the river, the magic black cat bone would either be the one that floats to the top and goes in circles, or it's the one that comes back to you on the bank. Or it could be the one that flows fastest down the stream, or it could be the only bone to float and go against the current of the water. Oh, wow. That sounds magical. So there are a bunch of different ways. This what the hell? You got to jump in and chase it? Detailed. Yeah, it's a very detailed, but these are all from, these are all from like different people's ways of finding the magic mm. bone of the black cat bone. So after you find one, there were different stories on how you get it to work for you. As someone who grew up in Appalachia. I don't agree with any of this. I don't know <laughs> anybody who's ever done this. I don't either. But I mean, I didn't grow up here. So. so some people say if you wrap the bone in a new piece of red flannel, you go to the graveyard and you find the oldest grave. And at the strike of midnight, you mark an X into the dirt over the heart of the grave. Mm. But I actually didn't write down what that's supposed to do or why the bone has to be in a piece of flannel. So. It, it seems very like a piece of flannel. So. A piece of flannel. Mm hmm. I don't know. It makes me think of tartans. Yeah. Old Scotch yeah. that came over into Appalachia. So Tartan pieces. So from all this, we know the black cat's bone is supposed to be good luck. But the cat itself is like 50-50 in different lore. Good luck, bad luck. So the, Which I can see for a cat. Because cats are pretty indifferent. Yeah. So they can They're be like snuggle buddies. Chaotic or they can neutral. Yeah. Be like chaotic <laughs> neutral. Apps. Perfect. So... So the same holy stones and iron bones, wait, holy bones and iron stones, holy stones and iron bones, blog says that calicos are good luck, Cece. Yay. but a male calico is bad luck. Well, it's uh, almost never happened because they can't, say. they're all impotent. If they ever uh, happen, yeah. they can't breathe. So yeah. they consider it bad luck. Well, I'll, I'll, that would be good luck. Yeah. You know, I know, right? You have to neuter. I mean, nowadays, I'm sure. Yeah. Actually, at any time, really, because who wants all those cats running around? Right. Black cats are kind of in folk medicine and that they can kind of they have healing um, abilities kind of and that they can pass these abilities on to other things. So there was a there was a saying that a house with a black cat can't be conjured, mm, which yay. is awesome. So you're protected. Cece's mama's black. She, she so she was in the front <laughs> of my house. That's why I'm protected. <laughs> What? And Patrice just laughing her ass off now. <laughs> I saw her. She hissed at me. I know. <laughs> so, okay. So any water or milk from which a black cat has drunk is a good cure for things like whooping, cross, cough, thrush, hand, foot, mouth, sickness. Oh, weird. This but is no. a line leukemia. <laughs> yeah, right? I don't, I wouldn't do that. Mm -mm. I wouldn't do that. There's another, uh, another blog that I've followed or blog or website called The Blind Pig and the Acorn. And I've told some stories from there before. They kind of talked about some of these too and some of the stuff that they said was that the the author said that when they were a teenager they would ride on the roads with their friend and every time they saw a black cat the friend would lick her finger and make an x mark on the windshield to ward off bad luck did it do it you did that whenever you see a black cat when it crosses i make an x on my windshield so that's the thing i feel like that i don't lick my finger but i've been i was taught that from a young age my parents did it when one runs across the street in front of you, you mark it totally out. Totally didn't know that. Yeah. I, because I've had multiple black cats in my life, 
I always feel like it's good luck. I'm always happy to see a black cat. And mm-hmm. when it like walks in front of my car or whatever, I am just, I don't know. I feel good. Well, it's because they stop you from being cursed, apparently. Yeah, I don't feel like that's a bad thing, but yeah. I don't know. I was taught to do it, and I never questioned why. Well, they said bad cats. Black cats crossing your path are bad luck. Right. Well, and this one says that. Not in general, just crossing your path when you're going somewhere. And this one says, it's bad luck if a cat follows you home. Which is interesting. Mm -hmm. That's how I got my first black cat. Mm -hmm. But it says it's good luck if a black cat enters the house through the front door. Oh, yeah. What about a calico? (laughs) (laughs) It's really bad luck if a black cat licks his fur the wrong way. Oh, no. Backwards? How are they supposed to clean themselves? They usually lick their fur the right way. Right. So I don't know. I think it's probably. That's also a sign of illness. I was going to say, I think it's a sign of some weird kind of mania. It's good luck to pull a black cat's tail. I would disagree with that. I think the cat would disagree. I wouldn't do that. I gently tug. (laughs) (laughs) It's bad luck to kill huh. a cat. So tell that to all the people boiling, boiling cats alive. Them. And it says that the cat will haunt you if you kill it. There's other... Have You've heard the cats can steal a baby's breath thing, mm-hmm. right? That, Definitely. That like that migrated into like later... I mean, I had people tell me that not in the way of like the cat will metaphysically steal the baby's breath, but the cat will like sit on your child's yeah. face yeah. in the crib. So it's like, Which it's is the legit. exact same thing. Yeah. It's yeah. just, you know, like and, kind of And changed. some of them are kind of heavy. Yeah, and I so. did hear that. And people said, well, the modern interpretation is babies have milk, they're warm and they want to lay on them yeah. and lick their face. Cats mm-hmm. are very to them. self yeah, I like, mean, they're just like, oh, this self-centered. is a, this is a warm spot with some something that tastes good. I'll just lay on their and it's warm. <laughs> so I'm lay on their head, sit on your face, right? <laughs> well, it, it makes kind of makes sense. Oh, it totally does. There was a to cure a sty, you rub the tail of a black cat across your eye. <laughs> no, which I was like, that would kill me. Yeah, you're so Literally, allergic. <laughs> my eye would be like <laughs> would puffy and green or some shit. And so there's this last one that they said that was cats will gather around a house where a body is lying in state. And that one got my attention. Yeah, yeah. That's not surprising. This last one is from a Scottish belief that there's a certain type of fairy that would go in the form of a black cat with a white spot on its chest. And it's called a cat. It's spelled S-I-D-H-E, but it's pronounced a cat she. It would try to steal the souls of the dead from their bodies before they could reach the gods. And it, by walking over the body before it could be buried. So people would kind of be on the lookout. And that was why they said cats would gather around a place like that. They just really want to eat the dead. I know, right? I swear to God, I texted you. you guys yesterday that my fucking dog started licking. A, like, I had ant bites on my ankle from 4th of July. And my dog came up and was like licking my ant bites, which had been really irritated and like scabbing and stuff. And I was like, oh, she's licking my wood. Holy fuck, she fucking bit my ankle off. Like, my dog just tried to like, Kill me and eat me. Cece would eat me. I know. I have no, I, doubt. My dog's no doubt. I have no doubt. Absolutely if I didn't give her temptations me. and no one came over, she she's would like, eat. You are my temptation. <laughs> she would eat me. <laughs> so, this last one, maybe one of the beliefs relates to there's an old Scots Irish custom that became an Appalachian custom mm-hmm. that is the sitting up with the dead. Mm-hmm. There's a really cool site that I don't think I found before I wrote the story up that's called Unmasked History that did a really long article on this. But in Ireland and Scotland, you know, we all know it's called a wake, right? Right. Yeah. So urban legend was that the wakes started happening because there was this illness going around that made living people appear to be dead. And then families would sit and watch for at least 24 hours to make sure that the person was actually dead 
before, like it, you've heard the song Finnegan's Wake, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's the whole story about the guy waking back up after everybody thought he was dead. Did they say what illness caused, like what specific illness caused people? Not in this. And, and it's also, I don't think it's true. Well, oh. I mean, it's common though that people, they they didn't have a good way to determine that. No, and it could so absolutely be true that people would, or whatever, yeah. and they couldn't hear People the, would think that someone had died and they may not have been dead, but I it's don't think... It's a good think, idea not to just directly yeah, bury somebody. But I don't think it was that common, and it didn't sound <laughs> no. like there was any record of an illness going through the area that in mass made people kind of appear dead when they weren't. You know what I mean? So it, I think it probably came from some different real things well, like and then he people got really, turned into a story really were buried alive and mm-hmm. so then you know there was the whole put the bells in the church and, oh my god that's the creepy. graves and yeah, right. yeah the bells then there was the a whole graves. person that created like a, a coffin that you could live in underground with air and yeah that's and that was in the 1800s Aaron martinis martinis die happy because it did happen sometimes so yeah, it did. It did. Absolutely it was one of those things like sometimes. you want to be sure. The first time I heard about those bells that you could ring from your coffin, <laughs> that freaked me the fuck. I think it was like in the movie The Nun, though. I think that's what freaked me out. So in truth, though, where the wake really came from was from a very old, old, even older than that Celtic yeah, tradition. Celtic. It was based on the belief that evil spirits would steal the dead. Mm. So they were placed under a table mm. with a plate of salt on their chest to stop the corpse from rising up. And the Catholic Church then tried to stop this as a pagan ritual because they didn't agree with it because it usually would devolve into a drunken party. Yes, that's my people. You know, because everybody's there commiserating (laughs) with one another and everybody's like pouring one out um, for the person who's gone. Like all the Catholics I know can totally hold their own liquor. So I don't understand the complaint there. But, But, you know, the church did like the church so often did and how we got most of our, you know, Christian uh, holidays and things like that now is they ended up with a can't beat them, you join Mm -hmm. them. And so they agreed, they they had people agree as long as you pray during a wake, it's okay. Mm-hmm. Like you can do a wake, but you got to pray during it. So we know that you're talking to Jesus. So, so I wasn't familiar though, particularly with the Appalachian custom of sitting up with the dead, of mm-hmm. what's called sitting up with the dead. So here's, uh, according to this unmasked history, here's how the death would typically go. And this is in like small hill and mountain towns across the South. The person would die. The church bell tolls. Maybe, maybe it tolls the number of years that the person was alive. Everybody immediately knows what's happening, stops what they're doing, Mm -hmm. drops what they're doing, goes to the house because they know who's been sick and they know probably who has died. And they go to the house of the family. Women bring food immediately. Men immediately go out and dig a grave. And build a coffin. And the carpenter measures the body and builds a pine coffin. So this is before embalming is a thing. I mean, even though like, you know, they did embalming in Egypt. We all know embalming. But it wasn't a thing like in the U.S. until Mm -hmm. the Civil War-ish. And even then, it wasn't widely picked up through Appalachia for a long time. There was a book called Death and Dying in Central Appalachia by James Chrisman in 1994. He said that a funeral director who opened his business in 1918 had only 10% of his clients choose to embalm in his early years in business. It was like the premium package. It was. The poor couldn't afford it. Mm -hmm. And other people didn't like it. I was going to say it probably didn't take out till the 30s or 40s yeah. in Appalachia. Because in a lot of people, it's it's unnatural, right? You're putting these these toxins into a body and it just seems it's like wrong. desecrating. Well, yeah, believe in that, it seemed uh, very wrong. Dust to dust. Yeah. <clears throat> so so have your body go into the Exactly. Ground. You should just. But then why put coffins? I don't want to. I don't want a coffin. What's wood? Just saying. 
Back then, it I was guess wood. It, was, it, was, it wasn't like pressure treated yeah. or varnished or anything with so, the, like yeah. satin and just stuff. Kinda, yeah, right. with a vault God. around oh it now. No shit, all the stuff. I mean, dying is expensive now. Yes. With I don't want it to be. And they've it. made laws for a long time that like you couldn't be buried unless you were in some, you know. And I was well, just I mean, like, I want groundwater issues me, that I we need do need to think fungus about. Bag. <laughs> I know I've said it before, but y'all give me a fungus bag. Cremate me, please. Yes, you heard it here. So at the time, my living will embalming. <laughs> embalming was not a thing at the time. So instead, the bodies laid out in the home on what they called a laying out board or a cooling board, and this would be usually like a door or a table. Or sometimes an ironing board or something, but a lot of sometimes it was like families had a family laying out board and you would put it on, you know, workhorses and, you know, lay it out, you know, in the or across a couple chairs and lay it out in the middle of the living room. Saw horses. Saw horses, not workhorses. No, when you said it, I was like, I know what you're saying, but I don't think you You know, they would stretch it between two horses and they would yoke them (laughs) together and they would just parade around town. (laughs) Sounds Um, about right. So they would lay it on two chairs or saw horses. And um, they would stretch the body out so it was straight, which was not always an easy thing. So that sometimes they would have to soak oh, parts God, of the body. I'm sure. They would have to break bones sometimes. They would have to soak in warm water. You know, we know why. Um, and then they sometimes would tie it to the board to keep it flat, arms across chest. They would put a handkerchief under the chin um, because as the body stiffens, the people in the room would hear like cracks Cre- yeah. and creaks mm-hmm. because the bones would break and stiffen during, mm-hmm. you know, during the laying out decomposing rigor mortis would set in Mm -hmm. and so the body would literally move while it was being laid out so they had to tie it down because it would sit up Mm -hmm. if it wasn't tied and they had to they had to put you know a kerchief around because its mouth would open can you imagine like somebody in your family dying and then you just leaving them there in the living living room. room And going upstairs and going to bed. No. no. I could, the people I, stayed up. Really. Yeah. Someone was always up. Well, and, that's why, I mean, were they guard? But I know. Yeah. That, it, I know. It's I bizarre. Sleep. Yeah. It's just bizarre. But they, they'd put, it you know, bizarre. coins on the eyes, which is, we know, that's an ancient, ancient tradition from a bunch of different cultures. But also, the eyes are probably open. Yes. It's hard to get them closed until and, you sew them. And, and women women knew that if you put, um, if you dissolved aspirin and soda water and put it, put those cloths on the face, it would prevent darkening Ooh. of the skin early so that it wouldn't be as unpleasant. Mm-hmm. Um, the body would be blessed because of the Catholic Church. The body would Ooh. be prayed over. Um, and then there would be like a quilt that would be covered with like flowers and herbs and stuff. And they would mask the smell of the the body the decay, yeah. or the gas that it might release whatever to put there so and then everybody sits there and they would keep vigil until the body's taken to the church the next day to be put into the coffin for burial so this this brings us to the story that kind of puts these two parts of this together it's from Catherine tucker windham it's from 13 mississippi ghosts and jeffrey and it's called the black cat that black cat and so this is 100 percent her story super cool Panola County, Mississippi is where it happens. There's a man named George Mathis who dies and nobody is sad that he's died. Some folks said the preacher sat up all night trying to think of something good to say about George Mathis at the funeral service. Um, You don't want to be that person. No, you don't want to be that person. Don't be George. Um, Yeah. Her quote was at the graveyard while the dirt was still being shoveled over the coffin. One of George Mathis neighbors said louder than he intended to. That's sure the man who's going as straight to hell as a Martin to its cord. (laughs) And everybody heard him say it and it sort of shocked them. But then a couple people started saying amen. (laughs) Um, So he, he was a mean guy. He'd always been a mean guy. 
He was a hard worker, but he didn't believe in relationships. He didn't believe in anything else. So there was never anybody who could work hard enough to satisfy him. Um, So folks he hired to work his fields, he had impossible expectations that they would have to meet. When they couldn't do it, he would whip them or he would fire them or, you know, rake them over the coals some way or other. So he had tenant farmers. And if they didn't produce like he thought, then he would just turn them out and he wouldn't give them warning. He wouldn't give them. He would just throw their shit out into the into the road. And if they had children or families or it's freezing or pouring outside, he did not care. So folks said he treated his own family no better than that either. So one of George Mathis tenants at one time was a black man and everybody called him Bowman. He was originally from Louisiana and um he had been a tenant for this guy for longer than anybody else ever had, which was no small thing because he was so horrible to people that he hadn't done anything to get kicked out in that amount of time was unbelievable. Um, but one day he's clearing ground and Bo Bowman hurts his back and George Mathis sees that he's going to be out of commission for a while. And he says, go on, get off my property then. So Bowman stood up and told George Mathis, like you I've been on this land working well for you all this time. You can't, my wife is sick. My back is injured. I don't have anywhere else to go and you can't give me any grace. And George Mathis just doesn't care. And he yells at him. He says, get off my land. He picks up a limb that has fallen to swing at him. And um, Bowman sidesteps through the door and shuts the door to the house. And George Mathis gets madder and madder and he beats on the door and he beats on the house with both hands and on the shutters screaming to get off his property. And finally from inside the house, Bowman says, I'll leave, but you'll wish you hadn't run me off because I'm going to put a spell on this place and on you so that nobody will ever forget this day. So Mathis is so mad. He says he's going to burn the house to the ground with Bowman inside, but eventually he, he leaves and the man gets out of the house and he goes somewhere else and nobody knows where he goes but weird things start to happen at george mathis place for one thing he dies oh yeah george mathis dies and it didn't make a whole lot of sense why he wasn't sick and it kind of looked like maybe he had choked to death somebody started a a story that there was a conjure ball found under his front steps Mm. and somebody else said that there was a little mud doll by the path in the back of the house sort of like a a stick doll that maybe sort of looked a little bit like Mathis with a mean mouth and mean eyes. And there was a cotton string tied around its neck. But George being dead, you know, all those things um, that I mentioned in the how people die in Appalachia, all that stuff kind of kicks off. So the church bells mm-hmm. ring, the, the town gets together, even though nobody liked him. It's, it's, it's what, what you, you do. do. Mm-hmm. Um, and it reads how you dispose of a body. So they do mm-hmm. all those things. They put a Sunday clothes on, they put them on the board. Um, they lay him out in his house and, um, <clears throat> the sawhorses should have been covered up, they said, but nobody covered his. Like normally you put a black cloth to make it look a little bit more presentable. Um, nobody really cared. It was George Mathis. Right. Um, but they did feel like somebody had to stay and sit up with the corpse. So, um, the, the neighbors set up with them and it's quiet and awkward because nobody's really sad. You know, it's not like, it's not mm-hmm. like at wakes and stuff where mm-hmm. everybody's pouring one out and where everybody's, you know, celebrating a life. Everybody's just kind of crickets because they're just like, okay, mm-hmm. you know, is it dawn yet? Can we go? Cause nobody really cared. All of a sudden this awful racket kicks up outside. Like every dog in the country is howling and They howl and then they come loping out of the woods from every direction, every which way toward the house. Mm. And every man at the house 
is taking turns kind of running out in the yard and trying to shoo these dogs away. But they don't seem scared of anybody. They can Mm -hmm. run at them with a stick. They can yell at them and they just kind of keep on going. And they the howling keeps up and they all at once go quiet and they just start to go in a circle, tail Ah. to tail, all the way around the house over and over. And after several laps, they just all of a sudden, like they one brain hive mind, chase off into the woods together without making another noise. So everybody goes back inside and nobody talks about it because they don't know what to say. And a couple people are like yawning. It's like the middle of the night now and everybody starts to try and get settled. And then this big black cat walks into the room and it walks right up to the coffin and it starts circling around and around and it starts caterwauling like that noise that cats make that is unmistakable Mm -hmm. from any other noise. And it always seems to happen in the middle of the night. Mm -hmm. A woman kind of gets up from her seat and tries to shoo him away. But he pays no attention to her and he just keeps on walking and walking around the sawhorses around the coffin, taking his time. And every time he walks around, he yells a little bit louder. And two men go up to scare it. And one sticks his leg out like he's going to kick the cat. And then the cat just disappears into thin air. And the man's foot just swings at nothing. And the doors and windows are all shut. So this cat couldn't have just disappeared. But all of a sudden, he's back again. And he's circling the coffin and he starts howling again. And it does it all night long for the whole rest of the laying out. This cat now and again just kind of stops to rub up against the sawhorses. But it sits and screams all night circling this coffin. And then after the funeral service, it goes through the night and then, you know, they they bury him and the cat leaves. But after the funeral service, George Mathis' son, Sid, and a man, a free man, a free black man that they called Uncle Jake, they both heard George's voice calling for Sid louder and louder since they came back from burying him in the graveyard. It's like they they left and they went back to the homestead and they could just hear him calling for his son. Nobody else could hear it, but it never let up for Sid. And eventually he moved from that farmstead and his cousin moved into the farmstead and his cousin Ben started noticing weird things. So George Mathis had a son? Apparently. Oh, Okay. That was and, his son, not mm-hmm. okay. And Ben his noticed son. that every afternoon around dusk, all the dogs on the farm would bristle up and snarl at something that nobody else could see, and they would circle around the house and run across the fields. Then they would come back later and act like nothing had happened or like they were in a trance. And then, starting the night after George Mathis died, folks in the house would hear like knockings and scratchings at the doors, like somebody was having a frantic fit to get in. But when they open the door, there's never anybody or anything there. And there were nights when everybody who's asleep in the house would just jolt awake because it sounded like there were big oak barrels just rumbling and rolling down all the hallways and crashing into the walls. Bam, 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 over and over again. But then they would open the doors into the hallway and there was nothing there. So Catherine Tucker Wyndham said there were a few times that men would go out after they hear these barrel noises and they would meet this strange black cat sauntering down the hall of the house. And they said the cat would stare at them with evil eyes. And Ben and his family finally just left the house. And tenant after tenant tried to rent it and left. Mm -hmm. Nobody could deal with whatever had gone on. And eventually the house just rotted away, turned into a pile of timbers. There was just a broken chimney left where it used to be. And occasionally people say that they saw a black cat stalking out of the crumbling chimney of the house. And Catherine Tucker, Tucker Wyndham said they they said the cat has a self-satisfied smirk and that he strolls around the ruined house with a proud air like mm-hmm. he owns the property. <laughs> oh, man. So that is Catherine Tucker Wyndham's story, that black cat. That black cat. Wow. Death. 
Cats and death. Cats and death. Joy. <laughs> Let's take a break. Thank you. I enjoyed that. Do you want more Strange South every week? We can help. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and you can join our Facebook fan group, Fans of the Strange South Podcast, to keep the chat going with our whole creepy community. Do you have a story idea for us or a story of your own to share? Email us at stories at thestrangesouth.com. Plus, if you join our Patreon, you not only help support the podcast, you get an exclusive bonus episode for every show and a discount on merch. You can find links to all of these things on our website, thestrangesouth.com, along with photos, links, and show notes from every episode, Strange South t-shirts, mugs, and other goodies. See you there. uh, Patrice said all week, my story's going to be really short. My story's going to be really short. (laughs) And then I came in, she's like, my story's 10 pages long. (laughs) What? (laughs) Well, I thought it would, you know, I thought it was just going to be a quick little fun little information piece and then I dug deeper and found more mistake every time we make this mistake we always dig so deep dig so deep and I don't know that's what investigative journalism is people and I am going to give you some you know podcasts that do a much better job than I'm fisting to do about going into this but this is just a little tidbit you know how we do we're just a little tidbit you know how we do you know why you're here you know why you're here Mm -hmm. we love you for it Mm -hmm. we really do my sources are Cocaine and Rhinestones <laughs> podcast. <laughs> I know that one. Sources are cocaine. Yes, cocaine and Rhinestones. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rolling Stones magazine, Wikipedia. I know that one, I know that one too. <laughs> and a book that I'm not going to tell you about because I want the reveal to be a surprise. Oh, the reveal. Mm-hmm. I love reveals. All right. So it was the 3rd of June. Another sleepy, dusty Delta day. I was out chopping cotton and my brother was bailing hay. Box fan Chad would die right now. And a dinner time. And at dinner time, we stopped and walked back to the house to eat. Courtney's exploding. Oh, my God. And mama hollered out the back door, y'all. Remember to wipe your feet. And then she said... I got some news this morning from Choctaw Ridge. <gasps> Today, Billy Joe McAllister jumped off the Tallahatchie Bridge. I said Tallahassee. See, I don't belong here. <laughs> <laughs> I got chills. Oh, my gosh. So, I know this one. In 1967, a Southern Southern Gothic, I'm going to say Southern Georgia, but Southern Gothic tale of an ode to Billy Joel by Bobby Gentry. Not Billy Joel. Not not Billy Joe. Billy Joe. (laughs) Billy Joe. Joe. No old. Um, By Bobby Gentry uh, went to number one, knocking the Beatles out from the first place. Killer. Bobby Lee Gentry, who was born Roberta Lee Streeter uh, in July 27th, 1942. So she's she's around my parents' Mm -hmm. age. My dad was born in 44. A little bit older, but not Mm -hmm. by much. She was born to Ruby Lee. Which is such a Southern name. Ruby Lee. Chad's mom's name, Ruby. (laughs) Uh, And Robert Harrison Streeter. And they divorced, however, like a year after she was born and the mother Ruby Lee moved to California. And so Bobby ended up being raised by her paternal grandparents um, at a farm in Choctaw County, Mississippi. She grew up without electricity or plumbing, 
Plumbing? Mm-hmm. Plumbing. <laughs> she, uh, my mom. Well, she had she, electricity. But. She grew up without either of those two, which, I mean, it's a little bit, it's not unheard of in, in the poor South mm-hmm. and to not have that during the 1940s yeah. and such. And it was just like people were just coming out. Like my grandparents who were born in the 20s and 30s definitely had outhouses and had to like bring their water in from the pump and, and stuff. So they didn't have that either. But 40s, you know, more and more electricity and plumbing. Well, um, for one, they hadn't flooded all the valleys yet until the 30s for the TVA. Right. And the dams. Ooh, listen to you. Yeah. There we go. History. <laughs> History. That's how we got power in the South. Right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um. Bobby's grandmother traded one of the family dairy cows for a neighbor's piano when she was seven years old. And Bobby started composing her first song, which was My Dog Sergeant is a Good Dog. Oh. Is that not like the best name for a country song by a child? So all of this, she, she when she... um. She actually moved into, she left the farm when she's, I guess, during school age, a little bit later on. But she taught herself how to play guitar and play the banjo. And she was living with her dad in Greenwood, Mississippi at this time. And this is all before the age of 13. So all of this happened. Like she got a piano. She learned how to play guitar. She learned how to play the banjo between 7 and 13. If you've ever spent any time in the South, grew up in the South, you know that we have some highly eclectic, unique, creative, extremely creative people that come from the South. And it is because there is nothing to fucking do down here. <laughs> I mean, you get distracted. You can't. Yeah. I mean, if you 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 look for those escapisms outside of the work that had to be done and the mm-hmm. work was pretty grueling. And so your mind got to wander and got to dream up these better lives and 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 things and so this is kind of what i've imagined like of of these people like jim henson Mm -hmm. you know with the muppets and growing up in the delta and also bobby gentry she's in the delta uh so she as a preteen adolescent you know she was in greenwood mississippi and was very musically inclined. And then around 13 or so, she moved to Palm Springs, California, which is where her wow. mother moved to. Her dad's That's different. Wow. Yeah. So it was, it was like, wow, wow. It's a different, you know, right, mm-hmm. totally different planet. So while she was there with her mother, uh, Ruby, Ruby Lee, they started to perform as a duo and they were called like Ruby and Bobby Mayers because that was her stepfather's last name. And so they, you know, they sang and performed on the stage. And Bobby saw a movie called Ruby Gentry. First of all, like Ruby's her mom's name. Mm -hmm. And this movie is 1952 movie that she saw was about this woman, Ruby, who was this poor but beautiful girl from the backwoods who ended up marrying the town like tycoon. So just remember these details about Ruby. She was so, because her mom's name was Ruby and because she could really relate to this story about, you know, this girl being from the backwoods, she decided to take Gentry as her last name. And that's why we know her now as Bobby Gentry instead of Roberta Streeter. Hmm. She's out there. She went to high school. She graduated from high school. She enrolled in UCLA as a philosophy major. She also took some art classes 
She did clerical jobs. Uh, she performed at nights at, you know, different clubs, country clubs. She even appeared in a review at a nightclub in Las Vegas where she met Bob Hope, who like Ooh. encouraged her to keep performing. And again, she's like college age, so early 20s at this time. Bobby then transferred to the Los Angeles Conservatory of Music, and she took classes on composition, music theory, and arranging. And in 1966, she was asked to sit in on a recording session uh, to play guitar from, with this guy. And she's never done any recording before. So she, she talked to him and said, he, he asked, like, hey, could you play guitar, sit in and play guitar? And she's like, sure, but, you know, since you have a connection... Maybe, you know, maybe you can help me out. So it was like tit for tat kind of thing. And so she made some recordings, like demos, because she wasn't really wanting to be the performer as much. She really wanted to just write songs and have other people perform. So she did all of these demo tapes of her songs, thinking that somebody will pick up the songs and sing it and make it a hit. And she just will be credited with the songwriter. So she took these demos to Capitol. And the first demo that she had is called Mississippi Delta. And it's got a very unique Southern sound. It's not exactly country. It's not exactly rock. It's not exactly pop sound to it. And it was different than a lot of things that were being played at the time. But the second song that she had accompanying this was um, her side B, and it was just her and her guitar. And this was the Ode to Billy Joe. It was the very first demo that she put out. It was the very the first. Side B. It was the side shit. B. And it was just her and her guitar. They really liked Mississippi Delta and like, well, this is going to be the first song that we're going to release. But then they heard the side B and they were like, oh, no, this is it. This mm -hmm. is this is epic. However, they felt like it needed something more. So they took the original demo. They didn't have her re-recorded. They took the demo and they placed strings on it. They hired somebody called Jimmy Haskell, who did strings, like did music for some of the films at the day and also worked with uh, maybe Ricky Nelson or, 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 you know, some of the music, but was very familiar with like, you know, adding the strings to music and adding strings to film. So he approached the lead, the um, ode to Billy Joe as a film. And if you listen to it, that's mm -hmm. all they did is they added strings to it. They, he had like, Holy shit. One of the people pluck the cello. So it had a bass mm -hmm. to it. And if you listen to it, if you listen to the uh, Cocaine and Rhinestones podcast, he goes into so much of the musical part of it and he'll play the music back and like say, like, listen to this. And you can mm -hmm. hear like when he added the strings to it. That when the climax of the thing comes, it like it goes up the strings like like crescendo or whatever, or they like yeah. pitch high. And when they throw the thing over the bridge, you can hear it go Ooh, like it would he mm -hmm. would do in a film. It's very interesting. I was so like enthralled with mm -hmm. like all of the aspects of this story. Jimmy Haskell did the strings and it was magic. It was just like the right time, right place, everything. So by June of that same year, she signed with Capitol Records and the single that is now side A, the legend or the ode. I don't know what to say. I keep on to say legend of Billy Jean. That's not it. It's the ode to Billy Joe. Billy Joe was released and 
July of 1967. So a year later, first single was released, knocked the Beatles out of the charts. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that. They took, because it was so successful, the producers quickly assembled the rest of the album from the 12 demos that she recorded and completed the overdubs, meaning they didn't have her re-record them. They just put like stuff on top of them and then released it. Capitol pre-ordered 50,000 copies at that time of her record, which was the largest press pressing of a debut album in the label's prior history. And the song, the Beatles song that she knocked out of the top number one was All You Need Is Love. Uh, oh I was going to say let it be, but okay, close enough. <laughs> what year was that? In 1967. 67. Yeah. So Bobby won three Grammys for that album and album or song. And then um, Haskell, who did a fantastic job with the strings, who should fully get credit, won also a Grammy for it. She won Best New Artist, Best Female Pop Vocal Performance. And she was also named the Academy of Country Music's Most Promised Female Vocalist. So it crossed all different music lines here. Her performance on screen and off got the interest of the head of the BBC and in the next year, 1968, invited her to host a variety show on the BBC Two. And (laughs) that seems random. It it is the BBC. Right. But they were, I guess, because of the Beatles coming over to America and and all of that. You took something of ours. We're going to take something of yours. (laughs) So this made her when they invited her. Plus, she was she was gorgeous. She's tall. She, you know, long legs because of the way that the industry was is today. You know, they gave her 27, 24, 27 like measurements in a news article about her. Instead of talking about her music, they were talking about like what she looked like. So Barbie, she was basically a Barbie. But when she went over there, she was the first female songwriter that they hired as a host to host a series on the network. And she also, with help with the producer Stanley Dorfman, made six half hour episodes that aired later that year. And Dorfman has said, like, after the few episodes that she did, she pretty much co-directed the show because she had such great ideas. Hmm. But the BBC wouldn't let you do that. So, you know, they wouldn't let you have an artist credited also as director or producer. So the credit went to a man. Mm. So in this gorgeous. Yeah. In the next three, and she's got this smoky voice. You know, you've heard the songs. I had no idea what she looked like. That's not, I've never looked her up. Yeah. I haven't really looked. Yeah. I never knew what she looked like. I mean, I know this song very well, but I didn't know. Right. So over the next three years. So when this came out, she was 25 years old. Over the next three years, she produced six albums. Oh, wow. And in 1970, her sixth album called Fancy was produced fancy was pro- like the reba was produced she's like hold on <laughs> sorry it was produced in muscle shoals alabama muscle well, fuck shoals. It. everybody know <laughs> <laughs> well, listen i don't know enough about country music to not crow about it when i know something <laughs> that i was know it's produced in muscle shoals is that your reveal that was my reveal that's okay oh, produced in muscle shoals i'm so sorry no so no, it was Reba. So <laughs> in 1970, 
She produced her soon-to-be Reba album, Fancy, <laughs> in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. I didn't know that was 1970. I thought this that Reba might have done a remake then, because that's much older than I thought. Fancy became wow. like her most her second most popular song, and uh, next to Ode to Billy Joe. And one thing that she did say about Fancy in an article, she said, "It is my strongest statement for women's lib." If you really listen to it, I agree wholeheartedly with that movement and all the serious issues that it stands for. Equality, equal pay, daycare centers, and abortion rights. Dang, girl. In 1970. 1970. Mm -hmm. And produced it. She's a fucking hero. Did she write and produce it? I don't know if she... I would assume that she would. Yeah. Um, Yeah, but but she definitely wrote it. She wrote it. Yeah, that was her song. In 1976, wow. um, the featured film "Ode to Billy Joe" was oh. based on Gentry's hit song, and it starred Robbie Benson and Glennis O'Connor. And if you listen, if you listen to the whole song, mm-hmm. and you may want to stop now if you've never heard the "Ode to Billy Joe" and go read the lyrics because it is very much an open-ended story and it's what drove people crazy because they want to know what it is that Billy Joe threw off the ridge before he committed suicide. And this is very I much... I think I know. About, I've always oh, had an oh. idea. Well, there's always been theories, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's like the big thing. It's like, what was thrown off and mm-hmm. why did Billy Joe McAllister jump off the Tallahatchie Bridge? It's, it's such a compelling story. So in the movie, the mystery of the title character, uh, Suicide, was revealed as part of the con, like a love thing, because Bobby Lee Hartley, who was the main character there, had a drunken homosexual experience, and that's why he committed suicide. And that was the movie's interpretation. The movie actually enjoyed a little bit of success. It brought in like $27 million. Wow. I don't know this movie either. Of learning so much about this song. There's many interpretations because, again, she left the song open-ended. The song itself describes a family having dinner one night and discussing the suicide of uh, Billy Joe McAllister, which had occurred earlier that day, that summer. Mm-hmm. The mother explains how the local preacher claimed that he saw Billy Joe and his girlfriend who very much looked like the daughter or the the narrator, the, the person narrator. singing mm-hmm. the song, throwing an object off mm-hmm. the bridge. In interviews with Bobby Gentry, she gets, she's like, y'all are missing because everybody's like, wants to know, like, why do you commit suicide? What was thrown over the bridge? Those are the two big mysteries. And she's like, y'all are missing really the point of the mm-hmm. song completely. She's like, the song examines like our indifferences and our desensitization desensitization i can't even say that word desensitization thank you mm-hmm. and our just callous attitudes towards tragedies which still are very prevalent if not even more so today with social oh, yeah, media they are more prevalent, and even with this podcast mm-hmm. as talking about right. like horrible things and then moving on you know instead of really examining like doing the deep dive and probably therapy work that needs to be done with with a lot of this um, and how we just kind of talk about it as gossip. But again, that's, I feel like that's such a human thing to do that. I don't think we're ever really truly going to stop that, that human interest, that human 
rubbernecking of other tr- people's tragedies. So that was the whole the whole introspective introspection and discussion was really what Bobby Gentry was hoping to achieve with the song. Um, she said, make of it what you will. You keep asking questions, but you're missing the point. And one of the commentators from an article that I was reading about this song, the Ode to Bo- uh, Billy Joe, which was published in uh, Spin Diddy, which is a music <laughs> uh, blog. And it's called The Story Behind the Song of Ode to Billy Joe by Bobby Gentry. And it said that a commenter said the song came out as like a suicidal or or the suicide stemmed from an illegitimate child. And they they were saying like a lot of people speculated that the object thrown into the river was a newborn or possibly stillborn child. And because they had lived in the area and because this was immediately what most people thought of, mm-hmm. it caused parents to berate teens more than they already were and like go around like telling people not to have sex so this would not be a thing which that's we, what i thought it was yeah which we know that doesn't work i'm like looking at the lyrics and i'm like where did you get that okay that's what i thought it was uh, i didn't think they killed a baby i think the baby was born still born dead. Yeah. yeah or made it right like they didn't want it right right exactly somehow got rid of it another commentator um along the lines of the movie's interpretation of it uh said that billy joe was spelled billy so Joe. So it's spelled like a girl's name, like B I L L I E uh, J O uh, at first when she wrote it. And so they hinted at a female version of that perspective, saying that the movie's reason of the spelling of Billy Joel seemed to point at the love that dares to speak, not to speak its name as it was called back then, which was certainly a strong theme in that era. And you know, we have Southern playwrights like Tennessee Williams that, you know, dwelt both directly and indirectly with the theme of homosexuality. Bobby Gentry admits that the story is fictionalized. And she, on one instance, it said that she did explain that she was inspired by the 1956 murder of Emmett Till. Wow. Hmm, that's different, though. Which is, <laughs> which is totally different. She said she was inspired by, not necessarily that it yeah, reflects it. Definitely, yeah. Uh, which I couldn't find that. But if she's saying that the point of it is people's indifference, then that makes a hell of a lot of sense. Because the mama said, you're going to see him. Mm-hmm. So, But listen no to this. So this is a connection to Emmett Till that somebody posted. So Bobby Gentry was born almost to the day a year before Emmett Till. And so Bobby Gentry was 13 and living in Greenwood, Mississippi, when Emmett Till visited Money, Mississippi from Chicago. Mm. And Money, Mississippi was 10 miles north of Greenwood. Oh, wow. Which is where Bobby was living. So going down Money Road from Money to Greenwood, one would follow the curves of the Little Tallahatchie River. And in Greenwood, there was a theater called the rebel theater that seated like 600 people and it was it would be a big draw in that area for entertainment and to go down to greenwood to see that is not out of the question so this is all speculation right so august 21st 1955 emmett till went to money mississippi and there were seven days from that until his death in August 28. So Bobby Gentry mentioned that Billy Joe put a frog down her back at the picture show. There was no movie house and money, like I said, but the closest one was Greenville. 
So as a resident of Chicago, it is plausible that 14-year-old Emmett may have gone down to the movie show in Greenwood and made friends, possibly with a 13-year-old Roberta Lee Streeter. Roberta very much likely could have met. It's in, you know, mm-hmm. it's likely or it could be um, it's likely. Possible it's possible for sure. Yeah, that they may have like met and, you know, believed that maybe she was, she may have felt like she was parsed partly guilty for his death that came about and if not like directly met him being in the area in the community and hearing and seeing all the things that it was very much probably in her forethought so it's plausible that you know if she was friendly with Emmett she could have you know wrote that as part of the song of something being thrown off the bridge which Mm. we all know that Emmett Till was thrown from the Tallahatchie Bridge in Money, Mississippi, with a cotton gin blade attached to him to weigh him down in the water. And, you know, Bobby Gentry sings about her chopping cotton in her song. So there's there is speculation. There is a lot of crossover there. She's never I mean, it says that she did confirm that it was inspired, but I cannot find that exact quote. And I don't know exactly where that came from. Hmm. But it doesn't mean that, I mean, she's like it mixing it to together. Literal. Like yeah. her feelings right. are, I feel responsible. And she could intermingle it with like these teenagers who have done something bad. Yes, because when you're that young, because I mean, the you people feel who everything. killed him were adult males. Right. Yeah. And But you, yeah, as, as a teenager, not, not a 13 year yeah. old. But and if she thought she was responsible, yes. it was because right. she was a white woman who talked right. to him. Mm-hmm. It was intermingled, right. is what yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. the guilt. Right. Exactly. Not literal. Yeah. Right. It's not literal. Exactly. One of the things that she did say is that the thing being thrown off the bridge is a MacGuffin. What does that mean? Uh-huh. So a MacGuffin is basically like uh, it's used in literature to further a story and to add mystery. It mm. is a thing. So it's not meant to be a specific It's thing. not meant for you to know ever what it is. It's like the suitcase in Pulp Fiction. <laughs> yeah, right. What's in yeah. it? That's a very, very good. Uh, it, it is. Yeah. Okay. That's a good example. Right. But it shows how powerful the song is mm-hmm. and how well written yeah. and and just all consuming it is. And as soon as it started playing, I mean, no wonder it kicked the Beatles off. It's like everybody was like going, what is going on? It's funny because when you were reading the lyrics, like I didn't know them. Like, I know this song because I know the the chorus. Mm-hmm. You know, she repeats that every stance you know i mean it's, right. it's repeated through this so i i know it that well but i don't know it well enough to know the words so i went back and read the lyrics while you started to talk about it because i was like okay i have to mm-hmm. i have to know more right but it's a story it is it's a I short story i only know it because of chad it i mean a, he was uh, like he's he's probably knows i don't know i don't know it because of chad i don't know why i, I know it. i don't know if it was in a movie soundtrack i don't know because i i didn't listen to country but i like, played it's not country though well, but it sounds like it kind of was like in the, mm. it wasn't like, I don't know. I don't know. I thought it was. It, it sounds to me like the Southern, 60s, it's like Southern, war rock. It's Southern music is, is what it is. It's, it's a cross between Southern rock, country, mm-hmm. well, then it has maybe the country strength. for the storytelling. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. The story is. It's a little bit of psychedelic, a little bit of blues, a little bit of jazz. Because it is. It's like. It's a story. It's a really good story. It's a really good story. And it doesn't need more. It's open ended in all the places that it should be. And like it's it's real smart. It's it is, real it, smart. She's she is a very smart woman. So uh, Bobby Gentry's work, her ode to Billy Joe, was uh, originally handwritten in a draft for the song. You know, it was just written down and she did the demo. But the demo is the thing that got released. Right. 
It is now part of a collection held by the University of Mississippi that she donated to the Faulkner Room in 1973. Mm-hmm. And it sits right next to Faulkner yep. wow. and Tennessee Williams. That's so fucking cool. That's like mm-hmm. the level of literature that they feel like this song represents. It's like amazing. It's, it's higher art. The original draft version of the song, a girl named Sally Jane Elson, is part of the story. And it may hold the key to why Billy Joe jumped from the bridge. The original Tallahatchie Bridge collapsed in June of 1972 after being set on fire by vandals, but it was later oh, rebuilt. Many people, obviously, like you write a song about a thing at a place and many people are drawn mm-hmm. to the thing at the place. So many people were drawn to the bridge after the song was released and the county intact like a hundred dollar fine for anyone jumping off the bridge. However, the bridge is only about 20 feet above the river, so you pretty much... Oh, not like your last bridge. Right. So, you know, if you you just got wet, basically, (laughs) if you jumped off the bridge there at the Tallahatchie uh, River. The last appearance, though, like, she had, like, a pretty prolific, you know, six albums. She hosted a bunch of shows. You know, she did Vegas. She did, like, all the things. It was very popular. And I didn't, like, include, like, seriously, listen to the Cocaine and Rhinestones podcast. There's, it's just, it's very interesting. It's pretty well done. So the last time Bobby Gentry appeared in public is when she attended the Academy of Country Music Awards uh, in April 30th, 1982. She was 39 years old. In 1983, the next year, she canceled a show for the first time ever. She's never done that. And she has not been around the music industry since. She has not recorded, performed, or been interviewed. She is still alive. She's just gone off the radar. Mm -hmm. She's gone off the radar. In May 14th, 2012, the BBC Radio 2 broadcast a documentary titled Whatever Happened to Bobby Gentry, which was presented by country music artist Rosanna Cash. She influenced so many people, both in country and rock and pop. She. It's just really, it's amazing. Like for somebody, like I knew the song, I didn't really know about her, but reading up on her and like how wide the influence of like her songwriting and her sound went Mm -hmm. to influence other people. It's just, it's, it blew my mind. It's Mm -hmm. like, I I even stopped and made my husband like listen to some of (laughs) of the podcast. I was like, cause it even influenced some of the, like the music that he's, he listens Mm -hmm. to. So in September of 2018, an eight-disc box set titled uh, The Girl from Chickasaw County, The Complete Capital Masters, uh, was released. And February of 2019, Mercury Records released Bobby Gentry's The Delta Suite Revisited, which is a reimagining of Bobby Gentry's Forgotten Masterpieces. Going back to uh, 2016, a news report stated that Gentry lives in a gated community near Memphis, Tennessee. But according to another, Gentry lives in a gated community in Los Angeles. She could probably live in both. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She could probably live both in Memphis and in Los Angeles. And the whole thing, like the whole, yeah, Reba redid her song, made it extremely famous. The song very much reminds me of the television where she got her name from because it's all about a girl who basically was prostituted by her mother mm-hmm. and then married somebody rich and that rich person died and then she exacted her revenge mm-hmm. on everybody that you know called her white trash which 
you know, I think it's a great she, song. Both of these are. Oh my gosh! Not, I it mean, how so I not empowering. Like both of them, I can't. Right? Imagine. She was such a, a, and she, you know, and she was a woman who went into a very male dominated where men got credit for the things that she did, but she stepped push kept pushing through. She had like the boyfriend that she was seeing um right after uh Ode to Billy Joe came out was trying to claim credit for <laughs> writing the song. Oh my God. And the guy again on Cocaine and Rhinestones went in and like did a comparison of his lyrics and her lyrics. Mm-hmm. And it's like it's night and day. And he's like, and I like this, you know, recording artist. However, he lied and he did not write her song. Oh, it was a recording artist? It was. It was. And Damn. And, and yeah, it was. That's harsh. It was really harsh. But Bobby Gentry, folks, y'all, she's still out there and she deserves a lot of credit. Interesting tidbit. Her song, Ode to Billy Joe, was like covered by Lou Donaldson, which my husband Chad had heard of as a jazz cover of the song. And it is one of the most sample drum breaks in hip hop history. Oh, wow. So her song, which was covered by this jazz artist has nearly is used in nearly 200 other songs, including Kayon. I can never say his name. Sorry. Kayon, Kayon West. Kayon. Kanye. 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 Thank you. <laughs> Shit. Kanye. Kanye. Kanye West, Jesus Walks, a, a oh, tribe. Yeah. That album is, yeah. Yeah, a tribe called. Tribe called Quest. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Y'all, y'all speak for me. Please. Got it. Got it. My mouth not working. So clap your hands. <laughs> it's used in that, that song and other songs by like Lauren Hill, Drake, Eminem, Snoop Dogg. And that the pop- drum beat from Ode to Billy Joe. Mm-hmm. Well, from a re, for a, like a cover. Oh, a cover okay. of it. So not directly. Oh, yeah, jazz artist. Yes, but the cover of it is used in basically so many hip hop songs. I just have to listen to that. Yeah, it's I, for real. I know what we're doing because I we know turn these songs. Up. Absolutely, I'll, I'll play it for you because I played it for my husband Chad. So that is Bobby Gentry and the Ode to Billy Joe. Patrice, that was awesome. Woohoo! So <laughs> oh, Billy Joe. Awesome. I wish that was a oh. gold. Yes, that was piece very good. That I was Damn. not expecting, right? Now I want no, to know this person because you know I see, well, look, we'll we'll take this up in the after talk. Yes, yes. Thank y'all. Thank you guys. Bye. 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 Why am I opening this now? I'm gonna don't. Eat. I'm not. I'm gonna open it and then I'm gonna set it aside. I just, just came more like of the look. Yeah, she did. It's like, what are you doing? Crinkle, crinkle, crinkle. She's like, I'm done. I'm eating crinkle, it. Crinkle, crinkle.